This is the Elevate Student Ministry Podcast. Hi, I'm Pastor Dominic. Welcome to Elevate, the student ministry of Living Word Church, where we exist to exalt Christ, make disciples, and equip the saints. Thank you for sharing some of your time with us today. May it elevate Jesus and encourage you. Let's get started. And Matt discussed how those who are in Christ have put off their old self. The idea of putting off and putting on is sort of like changing clothes. That's the image that Paul wants to bring to mind is that we are getting rid of the filthy rags of who we used to be. And now we're putting on Christ. And this happens at our conversion. And one of the things in the verses that he looked at was that we have put off the old self. This is verse 9 in Colossians 3. And we put on the new self. And this new self is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator, which is a throwback to chapter one, that we are growing in the knowledge of God. So beautiful. We can see this putting off and putting on, this being renewed. We're moving from darkness to light. The old man is gone. The old woman is gone. The new has come. This is 2 Corinthians 5.17 all the way. Behold, those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. It's beautiful. Romans 13, 14 says that we are putting on the Lord Jesus Christ, which means that we are no longer functioning as ourselves anymore. We are now functioning in the nature, the very nature of Jesus. Our old selves have died. They've been buried with Christ. And now that we've been resurrected with him, we've put on Jesus. Now our lives are going to look very, very different from what they did before. They're going to be lives of humility. They're going to be lives of forgiveness. And they're going to be lives of love. So are you guys ready to dive in with me tonight? All right, who has your Bible here? Hold up your Bible if you brought it. Good job, good job. See you, rock on. All right, we're going to be diving in to God's Word. But I want to open with a story of a couple. Now, the woman's name was Elizabeth Howard. She was from Brussels, so not native to America, but she moved to the United States when she was very young. And when she grew up, she went to Wheaton College in Illinois, and she met Jim, Jim Elliott. And the two kind of began to like each other, but both of them had a heart for missions. And because Jim had such a heart for missions, he believed that God would never have him get married. He wanted to go and give his life away for Christ. Well, both of them ended up in Ecuador on the same mission field at the same time, and they found each other, and they fell in love, and they got married. And right about as they were raising their 10-month-old daughter, Jim's friend, who was the pilot that flies the missionaries in and out, spotted a village, a settlement not too far from the landing site. And they believed that it was unreached. It wasn't contacted by the outside world, so they began to airdrop packages and messages to them to get to know them. And so that sort of making the way for them to come. And Jim and four of his friends set out in the jungle one day to go and meet this tribe. And time elapsed and word did not come home to Elizabeth. Word didn't come home to the mission group that they were with. They were lost to the jungle. So they started sending out search parties and they couldn't find them. And it became national news and soon it became international news. And finally they found the bodies of all five 
of these missionaries. Jim had been speared to death by the very tribe they were trying to reach for Jesus Christ. Now, Life magazine ran a big article about the sacrifice of these missionaries. And it was sort of up. It was the discussion of the time. Were these, these outsiders, these white Americans going in, did they waste their lives? Was it a foolish thing to do to try to, to press in to these savages and teach them about Christ? Had they wasted their time? And a year after this, this miserable event, this terrible thing that happened to Elizabeth and her 10-month-old daughter, she wrote a book. And she wrote a book, and she included a journal entry from Jim Elliott. And I want to read that entry to you. Was it worth it? This is Jim Elliott. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to get what he cannot lose. He is no fool to give what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. He's following the footsteps of Jesus. Of Jesus who said that it's better to lose the world but gain your soul. And he was a man who gave it all for the sake of Jesus. When we look at Colossians, we're looking at a lifestyle that is not a lifestyle of a man or a woman. This is the lifestyle of Christ bleeding out of a man or woman. Someone who is in Christ, who is living in a new nature now. That things have changed. And they're going to live a life where they're living humbly. They're going to live a life where they forgive and they're going to live a life where they love. So turn your Bibles, if you're not there right now, to Colossians chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 12 tonight. Colossians chapter 3, verse 12. If you're not there, give me a... Uh. All right, I'll wait for you. Chapter 3, verse 12. While we're waiting on you, the last verse that was read last week was that in Christ there is no longer Greek or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, or free, but Christ is all and in all. Before the cross, the ground is level. All social divisions have come down. We are all before Christ as sinners and hopeless, and Jesus has chosen us, has loved us, has lifted us up and made us his adopted sons and daughters. And so it's parallel, excuse me, spontaneous coughing. It's parallel, what is this? It's parallel, it's level at the foot of the cross. Wow. Lord, get this demon out of me. You know, it's interesting coming from that story about Jim Elliott, that there's no longer slave or free, Scythian barbarian. Huh. I love how Jim didn't see them as savages. We'll come back to that. Verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. All right, so we have like a command. Put on then. And then he stops and he says, okay, this is who you are. This is your identity. Because you have this identity, it's going to change how you live. I want to slow down and talk about that identity for a minute. Because he gives some of the most beautiful language here. Put on, then, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved by that God. <coughs> what does he mean by God's chosen ones? Again, God, Paul is using this language, put on, then. 
Putting on Christ means you're going to live differently. He's calling them to be chosen. He's calling them to be holy. And you know what? You know, he's not calling them to be. This is who they already are. They're chosen, they're beloved, and they're holy. And these are shocking words. These are shocking words for them because God had only ever spoken with these three identities to the nation of Israel. And now these identity words are being laid onto the mostly Gentile, non-Jewish Colossians. Turn your Bibles to Deuteronomy 7 with me. This is way in the back. This is the fifth book in the Bible. It's the end of the first quarter of your Bible, if that helps you. Deuteronomy chapter 7. I want to take a look at how God speaks about his people, Israel. And I want you to keep your ear out or your eyes open for those kind of key words. We're looking for key words like chosen, holy, and beloved. Look for those kind of themes in what we're about to read. Because this is going to lead in to their identity that Paul is describing. Deuteronomy chapter 7. We're going to begin in verse 6. Again, we're looking at the identity of God's people. Are you all ready? If you're not there yet, give me a huh. All right. I'll wait on you. I love you. Deuteronomy chapter 7, verse 6. For you, you are a people holy, set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you are the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath he swore to your fathers. Did you hear all three? All three are involved in these verses. God is speaking about Israel, the nation of Israel, and he's taking these identity words, this language, and he's putting it right on the Colossians. These Gentiles, these people that don't belong to Israel, they don't, they don't get to be chosen. They don't get to be holy or beloved by God. They're not of, quote-unquote, Israel. But i got to ask you the question. Look at those verses that we just read. What does God say? He's saying, you, you don't deserve my choosing you. You haven't done anything. It's not because you're such a great nation. You're such great people. You don't necessarily deserve the love or the grace or the gifts. You haven't earned it. You haven't done anything. God chose you simply because he loved you. And he loved you because he chose you. And he chose you because he loved you. And he loved you because he chose you. It comes down to nothing that they have done. It is only for the sake of God's grace. God, in his good pleasure, for no reason apart from himself, from nothing they have done, God chose them. God loved them. God made them his treasured possession. Like, wrap your mind around that. Of all the nations of the earth, God says you. For no reason other than because I wanted to, because I loved you, because I chose you, because I loved you. And what is Paul doing here? Paul is taking these words and he's saying, no, God's grace expands beyond the nation of Israel. God's grace now goes to the Scythian, goes to the Gentile, goes to the barbarian, goes to that tribe out there in the middle of Nowheresville, that savage tribe. God's grace now extends outside of its borders 
Why? Because of something good they've done? No. If, if you ask the question, did they earn it? Did these Gentiles earn it? Was there something significant about them? Were they better than anyone else for any reason? The answer is no, no, and no. If the answer to any of those questions is yes, then it's no longer grace. Because grace is receiving something you did not deserve. Receiving a gift or a blessing you did not earn. As soon as we earned part of it, it's not grace anymore. By grace, you have been saved. And so just like God chose Israel, Paul is saying, Colossians, you put your faith in Jesus because he chose you, because he loved you, because he has set you apart to be his, to be holy. God applies these sacred terms to the Colossian church. This is crazy. To dig in a little bit further, what does it mean to be God's chosen ones? Ephesians chapter 1, if you want to turn there with me. This is worth underlining. If you go back to Colossians, you just have to go left a little bit. Ephesians chapter 1. What we're reading, we're jumping into Paul's worship. We're like jumping into his worship song right now. Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, you there with me? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Blessed, we're in the middle of worship. Blessed be the God of the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. You can, like his hands are up right now. He is fired up. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Nothing has been held back from you, believers. Nothing. There's nothing you have to earn. You don't have to have enough faith to get something. You don't have to be a good enough person to get something. When you said, yes, Jesus, you're my master. When Jesus saved you, when he pulled you out of darkness into light, he gave you his Holy Spirit and every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Nothing has been held back. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. When were you chosen, believers? <laughs> it's right here. Look down. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Even as he chose us. When? Before the foundation of the world. Why did he choose us? That we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. According to what? Not according to how good you were, not that you were more religious, not that, that you did anything, that you had the right family, according to nothing apart from his will, to the praise of his glorious, to the praise of his glorious grace, his grace. As soon as you earned it, it's no longer grace, but he gave it freely according to his love. Adoption, let's stop and think about that for a minute. My brother and sister-in-law, Jeremy and Amber, they have adopted a young girl named Faith. They got a phone call. Would you foster this little girl? But you need to know she comes with a whole lot of medical problems. There, you're going to be at the doctor's office all the time. She has a feeding tube. There, you're going to be up multiple times in the middle of the night, every night. And Amber and Jeremy said, yes. 
And they took on a very difficult situation, but that situation was a sweet little girl named Faith. And they nursed her and cared for her, and they said she's never going to be off the breathing tube, the, the feeding tube. And finally they said she's going to be off the feeding tube, but you have to get her to this point. And it was just constant. They didn't sleep through the night for way over a year, getting up and feeding her again and again and again. And then came the opportunity to adopt her, and they made her Faith Smith. Now, Faith did not call up Amber and Jeremy and say, Hello, just wanted to let you know, you're going to be my parents. FYI, get the memo, come into your house. No, there was a moment when Amber and Jeremy said, We choose you. you she was weeks old. There, she had nothing to offer apart from their extended love for a little girl who couldn't love them back, who was going to be a lot of work and a lot of grace and a lot of patience. Sweet little faith. That is the adoption of God for his people to be chosen in him in Christ. That God said, I choose you. And anyone in this room that calls out to Christ, you have that opportunity to say, Jesus, I'm yours. I repent of my sin and I turn to you and I've got great news for you. You didn't start the process. God has been working on you. Isn't that beautiful? Since before the foundation of the world. That same kind of grace that he had for Israel is now extended to you and I through the book of Colossians chosen but they're chosen with a purpose just like in Ephesians they're chosen as it says in Ephesians to be holy and blameless before him and Paul says the same thing in Colossians 3:12 he says put on then as God's chosen ones holy and beloved they have been holified sanctified holy literally means to cut off like you have a shirt and you're like no more sleeves Shing! cut off separated no mas. God is taking his people and he is pulling them out of the world. He is cutting them off from the influence of society, from the life or death blood of what used to be thorns, and he is now fusing them in to his own vine. They are now grafted into the Lord, cut off from what they used to be. They used to be thorns. And they used to create thorns. And now they're grafted into Christ. And now his sap is flowing through them, producing new fruit. They are now separated from that world. They are holy and set apart. God has resurrected us from the dead to be set apart. Our priorities are different from the world. Our pursuits are different from the world. Our, our, our sins that we used to be wrapped up in are gone and cut away. We no longer bow to the gods of this world. We no longer bow to the person in the mirror. We have been saved by Jesus. And if you have been saved by Jesus and your lifestyle hasn't changed, you need to double check whether or not you've given your life to him or not. If you are now two weeks, two years, or 15 years into being a child of God and you look, but your life looks exactly like everyone else around you, you may need to do a double check and a heart check. 
Because those who are in Christ are new creations. They are holy and set apart from our old lifestyles. We stand out. We're unique. We're foreign in society. We're like that light on a hill in a dark landscape. Boom, there's you. When you're walking down the hallway at school, when you're in Walmart, wherever you are, when you're on social media, in the dark landscape, boom, that should be you. Everyone should know exactly that you're different because we are wholly apart for our God. So what area in your life have you been guarding from God? What's the area in your life that, Lord, you can have it all, but this right here? <laughs> no, no, this is mine. Maybe it's your sport. Maybe it's a boyfriend. Maybe it's a girlfriend. Maybe it's your language. Maybe it's a certain social media site that you just, you love it. What is it that has been held back from God, holyfying, sanctifying, setting apart? Because every aspect of your life should be touched by your Savior. Holy and beloved. These are our identities now. We're chosen, we're holy, we're beloved. Beloved means that there is an exclusive love. Think for a second. If I had brought one of my kids, uh, let's say I brought, I don't know, let's pick someone really sweet and adorable. Eliana. Let's put her right there. Little sweet, adorable Eliana. She barely has like 15 words. She just toddles around. She's super cute. She cries cute. It's amazing. Now let's say she's here tonight. She's paying attention, which she can't do. And suddenly, a Louisiana experiences its own California-style earthquake, right? Now, I love everyone in this room. I hope that if, that if there was the need, I would choose myself and, and I would choose your life over my life. That's it. I would choose you over myself. I hope that that would be true about me because I love you guys. But if this room started shaking and the walls collapsed over the doors and stuff starts falling from the ceiling and the, and the roof is coming down in chunks, I am going to throw my body over my little girl. And the two thoughts I will have is, one, leave her an air pocket to breathe, and two, no matter how much it hurts, don't move. And I would do that for her. I'm not diving for any one of you. If she wasn't here, I'd probably try to protect the girls first because I like the girls way more than the guys. Sorry, guys. Fend for yourselves. But you have to understand that if my daughter is in this room, my love for her is exclusive in a way that my love for you guys will never hold a candle to. If I'm on a subway car that's packed and I have my child on my right, I could be in the room with everyone else, but I am with that one. My love for them is exclusive. There's a relationship here. I'm going to dive on top of my little girl. When God says that you are his beloved, it's because he dove for you on the cross. That he has chosen you to be set apart, but the only way you're set apart is if your God said, I love them with a special, exclusive love, and I am covering them with my blood. I'm covering them with my righteousness so that before a holy, righteous, just God, they will stand under my righteousness, and I will take every hit for their sin. And he went to the cross and never cried out. That is what it means to be beloved by your God. This is defining our identity in Christ. It's beautiful. It should leave us bewildered with his love for us. 
And God has expectations for the identity that we are living in. Those who are in Christ act like Christ. They act like Jesus. The outside is going to reflect the changes happened inside. There's going to be a righteous and holy identity, which results in a righteous and holy lifestyle. Did you know that many Californians paint their grass? A lot do. This is, this is really foreign to us, where we have rain like 400 out of 365 days a year. But Californians, whenever they get into that long stretch of no rain, there's this shortage on water so that they even put out laws that they can only use so much tap water, as in they can't water their lawn. So they hire companies. There are companies that have designated themselves to spray paint people's yards. Dead grass, spray paint it, natural green, doesn't my yard look purdy? There are a lot of people that try to spray paint themselves looking like a Christian that are dead. And the qualities that Paul is about to discuss, I'll be honest with you, you can look the color Christian for a little while, but whenever we start getting to impatience and enduring with one another, unless you are alive on the inside through Christ and growing, you're going to shed your colors. Has your life in Christ borne fruit? Has your Christian walk changed and grown over the years? Or do you still act differently depending on the people you're with? Because maybe you're just painting your grass every Wednesday night and Sunday morning. You may need to do a check. God's chosen live differently. Let's take a look. We're jumping into verse. Let's keep going to verse 12 and roll into 13. Put on then. Okay, now we're finally getting to what he's telling us to put on. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, Kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Bearing with one another. Let's slow down for a minute. Compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts literally means bowels of mercy. Bowels of mercy. It's the idea that you hurt for someone way down in your gut. You see someone who's hurting and you hurt with them. Compassion Passion doesn't mean sexual intimacy. Shocker. Passion means suffering. What are you passionate about? What are you willing to suffer for? Those go hand in hand. So passion is suffering. With is together. To have compassion for someone means that you are suffering with them. If you hurt for someone, you're having compassion on them. You're feeling pain deep down in your gut for them. I love the story of the Good Samaritan. Luke 10, 33, it talks about this parable that most of us know. A guy goes on a journey and he gets beat up by thieves and left to die on the side of the road. And this guy's national enemy comes, comes by and sees him. And it says that he crossed the road to help him. And actually it says that the Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. 
When believers love Jesus, when they see someone in need, they hurt for them. And at this point, when you hurt for someone, it moves you to take action. So what is the action of compassion? It's the very next one. Compassionate hearts and kindness. Kindness is the action of compassion. The Good Samaritan in Jesus' story didn't just feel something for him and move on. Oh man, I hurt for you. And then he keeps walking. He crosses the road. His compassion moves him to help even his enemy. In Matthew 20, 34, we start to realize that Jesus is the perfect example of compassion. It says that it was out of compassion that he healed the blind men. In Luke 7.13, it was out of compassion that he raises this boy back to life. In Matthew 15.32, it's out of compassion he feeds the crowd of 5,000. And in Mark 6.34, it's out of compassion he teaches the crowd who is ignorant about the Lord. Jesus, throughout the Gospels, is moved by compassion for people. But his compassion isn't just hurting for them. His compassion is taking action. It's feeding them. It's raising them from the dead. It's healing them. But I think one of my favorite stories of Jesus' compassion is when he encounters the man covered in leprosy. The person that was exercised from society. This is a man who had not known close friendship for as long as he was known as leprous, who had had to live far away from everyone, excluded and rejected, marginalized, and when Jesus encounters him, Jesus not only crosses the difference, he not only closes the proximity, Jesus reaches out and he touches a man who hasn't felt human contact in years. And instead of Jesus being made unclean by his leprosy, Jesus' compassion heals his sickness. It is out of his compassion that Jesus is moved to action. What a beautiful picture. It's kindness, it's compassion, and meekness. Meekness is also the word for humility. Humility is a great exchange. It's you over I. That's humility. It's a mentality. That is, humility is the antidote for self-love that poisons our relationships. I'll say that again. Humility is the antidote for the self-love in our lives that poisons our relationships. I like this quote by Rick Warren. It says that humility is not that you think less of yourself. Oh, I'm a terrible person. I don't think I'm that great. It's less than you think. It's not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's your great exchange. I'm going to be more considerate of other people than myself today. But I like what C.S. Lewis says even better. I think I have it up there for you to read. Do not imagine that if you meet a really humble man, that he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be the sort of greasy, smarmy person. A smarmy person is someone who's always like, oh, I'm terrible, I'm no good. Who always is telling you, of course, that he is nobody. Probably all of you will think about him is that he seemed cheerful, an intelligent chap who took a real interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. It's a great exchange. This past week, I was driving Dominic and my niece Aubrey to school. 
and my son is not falling far from the tree. He has a wild imagination, and he's loud. And he's sitting in the back seat with sweet Aubrey, who is the opposite. And he says this. He says, Aubrey, we're going to do a race. Reach up there and grab that handle over your head. And she's like, okay. So she's grabbing, like, the old crap handle. And Dominic goes, okay, we're in a race. And I'm like, wow, this is awesome. So I'm, like, trying to pass a car ahead of me. Like, let's get into this imagination a little bit, you know. And then I hear him go. And I'm like, did we all die? Like, what is happening here? And this is what comes out of his mouth. He goes, oh, no, another car just crashed. Let's go back and help him. I don't care about the trophy. I care more about them. I'm like, who are you? I love you, kid. And then he goes, they didn't have seatbelts because they're really poor. <laughs> who are you, kid? He's like, okay, we're all, they're all better. Engine blasters. And he finally gets calm, and I hear Aubrey go, my arm's getting tired. <laughs> this is the best. Let's go and help them because I don't care about a trophy. I care more about them. That's humility. Humility is pulling over to say, you are more important than me. That's what scripture says, to think higher of other people than we do ourselves. And you know what? Like most of the time, our actions can look really humble, but our thoughts are still so self-centered. We're still wrapped up in our own little world. We can't think past our nose. We're always asking ourselves, like, do people like me today? Are people going to recognize the hard work I put into this? Like we always live with this self-centered view where everything's revolving around us. But we're putting on Christ, and Christ was always looking out. He was always serving. He always had compassion, the action of compassion, which is kindness, and always exchanging the you for the I in his life. This is our God. You know, in classical Greek literature, humility was always seen as a negative trait. It was pride that was exemplified. You weren't supposed to have humility. You're supposed to be prideful. But Jesus flips society's understanding. God's chosen live differently. We think differently. And he becomes the great model. John 15, 12 through 13. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. And Jesus did it. Kindness, humility, meekness, which is also humility. Oh, I'm sorry. Compassionate, kindness, humility. Now we're looking at meekness, which is also gentleness. Now meekness is not weakness, and it's not spinelessness. Meekness or gentleness actually means it's controlling your anger and the ability to bear the anger of someone else. This is when life gets really, really hard and you have the self-control to not lash out. Meekness. It is your strength under control. It is the horse with a bridle in its mouth. It's power that has been put under the authority of a new master. And it's not us because we get out of control fast. But it's power that is now under the control of Christ. The persecution of Christians in the United States is only going to increase. Guys, if you love Jesus and you're willing to exemplify Christ, it's about to get hot. The boiling temperature is upon us. 
Genuine Christians are rigid about what truth is. And we're rigid about what sin is. And our culture hates truth and it hates us for being rigid about it. We can expect suffering. But a suffering Christian is not an angry Christian. A suffering Christian is a meek and gentle one. 1 Corinthians 4, 12-13 says, When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. When slandered, we entreat. Jesus said, if they persecuted you, they're going to persecute me. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. Does and you got to be asking yourself, like, does God actually expect me to be meek in the face of people being terrible? I, I got to ask, I want to respond to that question with a question. Are you in Christ? Then you're going to act like Christ. You're not going to re retaliate. You're not going to lash out. You will be strength under control. Control of the Holy Spirit. How did Jesus act when they spit on him? How did Jesus act when they talked garbage about him and lied about him? Jesus responded in meekness and gentleness. This is different. I know. God's chosen don't live like the rest of the world. We live backwards. It's an upside down pyramid of how we live. An upside down understanding of what it is to go through life. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. I think a lot of us have the fortitude that we can handle difficulty in short periods of time. We're like good sprinters. It gets really hard. We can handle this. We get it under control. I think where most of us fail, me, is whenever we have difficulty and suffering that lasts not just today, but a week or a month or six months or six years. And it's just not going away. And it's then that our long suffering begins to break down. Our ability to walk in integrity, to walk in patience, to walk in expectancy of our God who is with us, who is in control, in suffering, begins to break down. It's hard to live in the storm. God is calling his people to put off how we used to live and to put on patience for a long distance race. And God is a great example. In 2 Peter 3, look it up later, it's fun to read. God says that in his judgment, that is coming, there will be this great cosmic uncreation. The elements themselves will be dissolved in God's judgment. But he's waiting. And Peter says we have to wait in holiness. But it's because of God's patience that you're saved. Think about that. It's because God is patient that you're saved. What if God had executed perfect justice the day before he saved you? What if? What if he had done perfect justice in the year 2000 or the year 1560 or the year 200 or whatever? But it's because he waited that you and I can know Christ. And it's because he's still waiting that those that we love may be called by Christ. Every day that God waits is a grace to those who don't know him yet. Every day that he waits is an offer 
to turn to Christ and submit to him as king every day. As God waits to return, don't see that as a defeat. Well, if God was coming, he'd be back by now. No, every day that he waits, it is a grace, it is a mercy, it is a gift because there are those who are being saved. Thank you, Lord, for your patience. Lord, may we have long-suffering and patience like you. Compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, put on these things and put on bearing with one another. Ephesians 4.2 says, bear with one another in love. Those who are in Christ, we are in each other's corners. And what I mean by that is that we give each other the room to not be perfect, to not always be okay. We give each other room that the Lord is still sanctifying people. Now, we're not constantly just judging and getting angry when someone sins against us, when we see someone that is, is acting wrong. No, we speak truth to them. We love them. But you know what? We need to give grace. We need to give room because God is giving grace. God is giving room for us to grow, that we bear with one another, that we give each other Room. Listen to this. Romans 12, 17 through 21. Let's turn there. It's just a couple of books back. It's easy to find. Romans 12, verse 17. If you're in the four Gospels, go right just a little bit. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans chapter 12, verse 17. Oh, man, let's back up. Let's go to verse 16. Oh, so good. Romans chapter 12, verse 16. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Pay attention now. Repay no one evil for evil. If someone gets angry and hits you, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. I know, it's hard. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves. Leave it to the wrath of God, for it's written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy, 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 not your friend, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Are you starting to realize how different God calls his people to live from the world? That is exactly opposite what we're trained to do. There was a, a farmer in China with his rice patties. I've told this story before. I love this story so much. And every morning he would wake up early at the butt crack of dawn, and he would go out and pump, hand pump water for his rice paddies. And one day as he pumps water, he realizes that his neighbor had gone, his neighbor who lived a little below him, topography-wise, had gone and broken out the mud wall and let the water from his rice flow in to his own field so that his rice received no water and his neighbor received all the water he'd worked for. And so our Christian overseas went to the Lord and prayed about what to do. 
How do I respond to this evil? So the next morning, he woke up even earlier. And he went down, and he broke out his own wall, and he pumped water until his neighbor's yard field was full. Then he replaced the wall, and he pumped water until his own field was full. And I'll fast forward to the end of the story, but his neighbor came to Christ. Because he didn't repay evil for evil. But he walked in meekness, in gentleness, in humility, you over I. He didn't live the way everyone else in society lives. He follows a different Savior and worships a different Lord. God's chosen live differently. And God's chosen forgive. Verse 13, bearing with one another. And if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also must forgive. A Christian's ability to reconcile, like inside the Christian community, our ability to reconcile is absolutely foreign to the rest of the world. The rest of the world lives in spite and anger and divisions, and yet God's people can endure some of the worst offenses between each other because of God's forgiveness in them. This is one of the ways that we are most different. But Paul doesn't say, forgive as they apologized. He doesn't say, forgive them as they have forgiven you in the past. But in fact, the reality of what he's saying here has absolutely nothing to do with the third party who did the offending or the hurting. It doesn't say anything about them. We only assume they exist because there's someone who's hurt, who needs to forgive. Actually, the forgiveness is not based on what this person can do or what this person has earned or what this person is good enough to receive. The forgiveness is based on Christ. It's based on what not they have done, but based on what God has done, what Jesus has done. He gives this example in Matthew 18 of this unforgiving servant. I think most of you know it. This king has a servant that owes him billions of dollars, more than he could ever raise in his lifetime. And the king forgives him. And the servant is so excited that he runs out and he finds a servant that owes him like a day's wages and starts choking him to give him the money he owes him. He did not treat his, his own servant the way he was treated by the king. And Jesus is saying, you need to treat other people not because of what they've done, but because of what the king has done, because of what Jesus has done. Are you hearing grace? God has given you grace, and as he has given you grace, you did not deserve and did not earn. You go and give it to someone who's hurt you, who did not earn it, who cannot live up to it, or maybe will not. Our forgiveness or our unforgiveness is in light of our relationship with Jesus. We are to give the gift that he first gave us. Why should we act like Jesus? Because it's no longer us who live, but Christ who lives in us. Jesus forgave us unconditionally, and in him we do the same. So God's chosen live differently. God's chosen forgive, verse 14. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Put on. This is that idea of putting on clothes. Love is the belt. It ties all of these together. This is the Jesus character virtue. It is out of love that we have compassion. 
It's out of love we have kindness. It's out of love we have humility, meekness, patience. It's out of love that we put up with each other. Love is the mortar of the church. It's the lifeblood of his body. It's the glue of our relationships between his people and their neighbors. Romans 13, 8. Love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled all of the law. Love is the wellspring that all these other qualities are coming out of. Verse John 4, verse 7 through 8 says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. So if you are born of God, if you are in Christ, you will love. Verse 8, anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. If love himself is living in you, you'll walk in love. God's people live differently than the world. God's people forgive and God's people love. Elizabeth Elliot, was it worth it that Jim was speared to death by this tribe? He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to get what he cannot lose. Two years after Jim's death, Elizabeth and her three-year-old daughter made the same hike into the jungle that Jim and his four friends did and sought out the same tribe that murdered her husband. They went into the jungle and she lived with the tribe and ministered the gospel to them and taught them about Jesus. And many in the tribe came to know Christ even, even the ones who had murdered the missionaries. Two years she lived with them, teaching them about Jesus. From there, she went on to author over 20 books, including The Savage, My Kinsman. Suffering is Never for Nothing, The Shadow of the Almighty, and another book called A Chance to Die. She traveled all over, sharing her knowledge and experience Later in life, she hosted a very successful radio program for 12 years called Gateway to Joy. And what's cool is she actually had a hand in the New International Version translation of the Bible. She was one of the consultants. I find that cool. Towards the end of her life, she wrote this. I think we have the quote for you. The deepest things that I have learned in my own life have come from the deepest suffering. And out of the deepest waters, and the hottest fires have come the deepest things that I know about God. You see, Jim Elliott gave his life for the Waodanis tribe. He exemplified Christ in giving his life. That anyone who would come after Christ would lay down their lives. But Elizabeth Elliott had the opportunity to live out love and compassion. To live out love and kindness to live out love and humility, you over I, in meekness, in patience, and in bearing with another. She lived out the love of Jesus in forgiveness. She exemplified Christ, and that's how she showed his character. Thanks for listening, and a special thanks to all of you who have subscribed, shared episodes, and left reviews. If you would like to learn more about Elevate, you can visit us at iloveelevate.com and follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Thank you for everything you do that brings faith, hope, and love to the world around you. Now go, follow Jesus.